From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Throughout the pandemic, public health officials in some communities have relied on wastewater surveillance to provide an early warning about COVID-19 outbreaks. Syracuse University environmental epidemiologist Dr. David Larson is working to scale wastewater surveillance statewide in New York, and he's also led a project that surveyed sewage from dorms at Syracuse University. He's an associate professor in public health at SU's Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamic. Thank you for making time once again for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Larson. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So can you start by describing how wastewater surveillance is done? Yeah, yeah. So wastewater surveillance is where you look for um, the virus, not not live virus, but but inactivated virus in wastewater in a treatment plant or outside of a building or in a neighborhood. And everybody that contributes down to that sampling point, they, that sample then is represented above them. And so with a single sample, you can actually test an entire community at once. So does it have to be untreated wastewater? You have to get it before it makes its way to the treatment? Yeah, so it needs to be untreated. It, we can get it at the treatment plant in what's called the influent pipes or out of the influent pipes. Um, but the treatment process will degrade the RNA that's there, and then it's uh, less sensitive of a method that, at that point. How soon after people are infected will they shed the virus? That's a really good question, and it's one that's difficult to answer. And so we know that, you know, three to five days after somebody is exposed to COVID, then they're starting to get sick and expose other people. And so we expect that shedding to be about the same two two days, maybe three to five days as well. And how much of the virus has to be present in order for it to be picked up through surveillance? Do you need to have a lot of the virus in the water? Well, from a from an epidemiology perspective, we've found that we can reliably detect about one in one case per ten thousand population. So for every ten thousand people that contribute to that wastewater treatment plant you can actually find virus if there's at least one case among those 10,000. Wow. Of course, you can't pinpoint it back to that person or that house, but you know within that sample, someone is infected, right? Yeah, and so we don't, we, we don't know who it is, but somebody is there. But then this also gives us confidence when we don't find it, that there may not be a COVID-19 in that community. And so if we have this situation where we're not finding it in the wastewater and we're not finding it in the clinical in the clinical cases, then these communities could be COVID free and that changes a lot of people's, uh, definitely changes stress levels and likely behaviors as well. How is it though that, because COVID is a respiratory disease, how is it that that can be tracked through stool samples? Well, up until now, we only thought about wastewater surveillance for fecal oral transmitted diseases or waterborne diseases. So we only thought about it for stuff like cholera or polio. Um, and so now this is the first time where it's been widely used to for a non-fecal oral transmitted disease for this respiratory transmitted disease. And so the, the virus, even though it's respiratory transmitted, it's really kind of like a vascular disease affects the, the vascular system more than anything. And it gets into the gut, and then it'll get excreted in urine and in feces. It can also come out through uh, through the nose, washing the face and different things as well. 
So can you get so specific as to tell a particular variance of a virus? We, yeah, you can. So there's the a process of genomic sequencing from wastewater. And there's the, the CDC's national wastewater surveillance uh, network is starting to do that across uh, numerous communities in the country. And so you can definitely find a variety of different uh, genetic variants in wastewater. Can you give us a little more about the history of wastewater surveillance for public health? Um, when did it start? It's, that's a good question. When you think about looking in the wastewater for diseases, you really go back to the the birth of modern epidemiology. And there is a big cholera outbreak in the middle 1800s in London. And a guy named John Snow was investigating all the cholera deaths and was able to track it back to track it back to uh, the Broad Street pump. And so they excavated the pump and they found that there was a, a cesspool that was leaking and contaminating that pump. And so this is the type of source tracking to try to figure out well, what's in, what's affecting our, our water and it came from the wastewater there. From there, folks started looking at uh, trying to find typhoid in wastewater, trying to find cholera. This was just at the beginning, the, about the turn of the century in the 1900s was the beginning of germ theory. So finding these different viruses and, and bacteria, mostly bacteria actually in, in wastewater. And then it's wastewater surveillance really picked up a lot of momentum with polio and it's become one of the key tools for polio elimination. Um, polio is kind of similar to COVID-19 with children. It only affects one in 200 kids will actually get paralysis from polio. The rest of the kids, they'll just have a mild case of maybe a cold or, or flu-like symptoms. And so in, in Israel, they were actually able to use wastewater surveillance to identify, hey, we have polio here. They rushed in vaccinations, vaccinated the community. They didn't get any paralysis cases. And so they were able to prevent child paralysis that way. And so then now the wastewater surveillance for polio is, is used to um, it's used to, to ascertain the absence of transmission, to confirm that there's no polio transmission. And so it's still used today. Uh, and then more recently, folks started using wastewater surveillance to to try to figure out how much drug use, illicit drug use was going on in communities, things like opioids and other, other things. And then with this pandemic, um, with coronavirus, trying to understand the transmission trends of coronavirus from wastewater. Wow, that's interesting. Tell, tell me about the uh, statewide wastewater surveillance network and what that is meant to do. So we're working with the, the New York State Department of Health and the New York State um, the DEC, the Division of Environmental Conservation, to try to build a statewide wastewater surveillance network. Um, this will then provide us going forward with the ability to, to understand transmission trends in COVID-19 independent of people getting tested for COVID-19. And we can imagine, you know, as people, as the, the testing rates are actually dropping off as people are vaccinated and transmission gets lower, people stop getting tested. And there's always a question from a public health perspective as well, is there is there no transmission or is it just under the under the radar? And so this would allow us to get unbiased estimates of transmission. It would allow us to give a, a probability or a confidence there's no transmission in certain communities. And it's another way of, of uh, and it gives us an early warning of increasing transmission. 
Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is your host, Amber Smith, talking with environmental epidemiologist, Dr. David Larson from Syracuse University's Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamic. I'd like to talk about the benefits of wastewater testing for public health. Does it cost less than testing people? And is it yeah. a faster result? So wastewater surveillance, a wastewater test is a single test and the equivalent would be testing about 400 people in a community. And so with a single test, you could, you could do like a random survey of 400 people to try to get an estimate of the prevalence of COVID-19, or you can do it just a single wastewater test. And the costs are, you know, the analytic test is similar to, to a saliva test. There's a little bit more processing because it's wastewater, but it's a similar cost. And so instead of testing thousands of people across the state, we could just test the few hundred wastewater treatment centers and you get an immediate picture of, of what, what the virus is doing across the state. Now, earlier in the pandemic, when you were um, testing specific dorms, for instance, on campus, um, would you see that that could be expanded to different neighborhoods or, or does it need to be like a congregate setting? So the, so there's, there's a, there's a happy medium in there. There's a transition point, I guess. At some point, it doesn't make sense to do a community-based estimate. You know, it just makes more sense to test everybody in that community. And that's a decision based on transmission intensity, based on the size of community. But with this community estimate, yeah, we can, we can get a neighborhood, we can get a nursing home, we can get a dormitory, um, we can get a prison, all these different places where we know that they're at high risk of transmission and sometimes high risk of disease and then get an early indication that something's wrong if it goes wrong, and then a positive affirmation that something, that everything's okay. And so it's, it's, it's a huge benefit to public health. Yeah. Can wastewater surveillance be helpful after a virus is already established in a community? If we know that, you know, there's COVID here, is there anything that, you know, we can learn from doing wastewater surveillance still? Yeah, in my opinion, it is. It's another, it's an unbiased estimate of transmission. And so we're always worried about, well, is transmission going up or is it going down? Even if it's high, we have super high transmission. We want to know, are we at the peak of our transmission or is it still going up? And wastewater surveillance will give us that a few days before the clinical testing. And it'll give us that in an unbiased way. You know, we could have with this vaccine, we could have silent epidemic of coronavirus, right? We could have a silent transmission going on. People aren't getting sick. They're not getting tested. They actually don't get into the measures of cases. And so we don't know how intense the transmission is uh, because our testing behavior has changed. Now, wastewater, there's no human behavior at all. It's just people people use the bathroom, you know, and that's that's not going to change. And so then we have this unbiased estimate of what transmission's doing and then we can make appropriate public health decisions as a result of that. What's it been like for you teaching about a global pandemic during a global pandemic? It's been interesting, right? It's been interesting. I've, I've worried about overburdening my students. I learned early that they wanted to know, you know, this is 2020 spring semester, right after the coronavirus um, jumped over from animals. Uh, so trying to trying to teach them at that point, they just want to know more about the coronavirus. So a lot of sit downs and question answer sessions and things. 
And then as the pandemic's progressed, it's been okay. It's, you know, a lot of examples to teach in epidemiology and public health practice. So. Well, the last time you and I spoke, um, because you also have expertise in global health, I asked you which nations you thought were doing a good job managing the pandemic. And you, at that time, you praised New Zealand and Vietnam, each because they had swift and coordinated federal responses and, and good contact tracing. So now we're more than 18 months into this. Do you still think those countries are at the top of the list? Yeah, so New Zealand, they're still COVID free. All right, and there's a big question. Will they be able to keep the Delta variant out? This Delta variant appears more infectious and it's harder to control. And they've gone with their elimination strategy and and they're pushing to vaccinate now. So, but they're still COVID free. You know, Vietnam, they've got a surge going on right now um, with this Delta variant. I think we're now a year and a half into the pandemic and um, there's a lot of fatigue all across the board. And so it's understandable. And then the Delta variant's a huge game changer, you know, the, the increased transmission of that. So they're still, you know, they're still commendable, definitely, those two countries. A few other countries have been excellent in vaccine rollout. Uh, Chile, they've, the, the country of Chile went crazy with vaccine rollout, just vaccinated everybody. And then Canada has been doing fantastic with their vaccine rollout. And so, um, so it'll be, you know, hopefully we get more vaccines everywhere. So, well, considering the vaccine, what do you think that leaders need to consider when they're deciding whether to offer vaccine boosters to the general public versus, you know, making sure all nations have access to vaccines first? Well, I think this Delta variant has shown us just how interdependent our own public health and health security is on the rest of the globe. So, this Delta variant it arose out of India. Had we been able to vaccinate India, you know, I think that well, it first appeared in December of 2020, and so there's no real way to to vaccinate before that. But if we fail to vaccinate a country like India, if we fail to vaccinate any country in the world, that will then pro provide an opportunity for the virus to transmit more intensely and to mutate. And the virus doesn't mutate from vaccinated people; it mutates from unvaccinated people. And so the, the more vac vaccine we get out globally. Um, if there's any pockets of unvaccinated people, that's a risk to us. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you, Dr. David Larson. He's an environmental epidemiologist and associate professor in public health at Syracuse University's Falk College of Sport and Human Dynamic. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.